This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and let's get right into this. You keep hearing it on the news, 85 new test case positives of COVID-19 in the last reporting period, 531 active cases in BC. We are all locked in on COVID-19 daily numbers and briefings, right? The surge definitely stoking anxieties for many British Columbians. And to talk through the hows and whys and and where we go from here, we, we likely know what needs doing, but perhaps we need a bit of a reminder. Joining us is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Hello, Minister. Thanks for doing this. Hey, good morning, Jody. I'm glad to talk to you. Uh, I saw your tweet yesterday. It made me stop in my tracks. The, the fact that we saw the third highest number of new cases in a day uh, at 85 and how that reflects the exposures a week or 10 days ago. The thing that really got me is the fact that these numbers are linked not just to youth having a little extra social contact and partying a bit more, but also travel from out of province. That's right. I mean, it's 85 cases uh, yesterday, and that's significant, uh, as were the 45 the day before, the 46 the day before. You know, this, this is mm-hmm. an increase in the number of cases. It's primarily and overwhelmingly in Metro Vancouver right now. And so what do we need to do? I think we know we have to recommit ourselves to following the advice of Dr. Henry. We've got to recommit ourselves to following the rules. And we need to take some steps to assist people with that. A number of weeks ago, there was uh, significant transmission in the Kelowna area in interior health. In a couple of days, we went from two active cases there to about 87. And now we're back at 12 again, right? Which is a very positive thing, meaning people have recovered and there haven't been new cases to replace them. And we did that because people got engaged in the Kelowna area. And so people did a lot of work in communicating a message. We made some changes and some changes on rules, for example, on houseboats and on uh, temporary rentals. And we're going to have to do some of the same things now. But we also have to, and we announced this yesterday, um, uh, prepare for the fall. Because, well, the case counts are significant now. They are also, um, we also see kind of low levels of hospitalization and yesterday, someone passed away, but it was the first person to pass away in the month of August. And in the month of August, 22 people have passed away in Alberta. So mm. uh, the, severe, the vulnerable populations right now, uh, there are fewer cases than there were. But this is the way vulnerable populations get reached is, is by people they know. And that can include the people who are getting ill right now. So it's a, we take it very seriously, the case counts. But we also have to prepare for a fall when COVID-19 will coincide with influenza and uh, cold season. And uh, that causes some special concerns that we are preparing for now. I want to get into the fall in a second, but I want to go back to the some steps you said um, with with so many numbers sort of surging or the uptick, whatever we want to call it, being in Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Coastal. What are some of the steps that could be taken that uh, might be likened to the houseboats and the rental property restrictions that came into play after the uh, Kelowna outbreak there? 
Well, a big part of what we did in Kelowna was reach people. So we engaged with yeah. what I call social influencers. And I just want to say to everyone in the listening audience, we're all influencers. Uh, you know, uh, if people are thinking of having a house party, uh, I, I just invite them not to, you know. And if people are thinking of going to a house party where they don't know the state of play and they don't know the rules, don't go. There's lots yeah. of ways to enjoy our summer without indoor alcohol-based house parties, right? And these, and you know, it sounds like we're we're focusing on a particular group of people. We're not. I, uh, that includes lots of people. Like I don't consider people in their 30s young necessarily. You know, they're youngish. They're younger than yeah. me. But, yeah, yeah. but the, the idea that they're not responsible, can't take responsibility, is, is not there. And it's the one place where it's more challenging for us to enforce rules is in private settings, right? In your home, right? right? Mm-hmm. We have a tradition, and this is a tradition that dates back uh, a long way, that a person's home is their castle, right? So, so that's where we need them. But it, it, we may also need to take some steps and look at the cases uh, if there are... Um, particular uh, either business groups or businesses that aren't following the rules. And so uh, you've covered issues around party buses, and we have to review that. Uh, but uh, I think as well, we just gotta, we just got to make sure and be out there more, and we are going to be out there more. Our environmental health officers are going to be out this weekend. And if we find in particular areas of endeavor some significant um, abuse of the direction, then we're going to take some steps, not because we think that the the sort of um, uh, a enforcement approach is the best approach or the only approach, but sometimes it's necessary uh, in these times to ensure that people follow the, the small but critical number of rules that have been put in place by Dr. Henry and WorkSafe and others. It certainly got people's attention with regard to the quarantine after travel when there was uh, an attached you will be, you will suffer these consequences up to this amount and up to this level of punishment should you decide that these rules don't apply to you. Let's get to contact tracers. 500 more contact tracers hired in your announcement yesterday. Is that preparation for a an expected surge this fall? Uh, yes. It's a preparation for two things. First of all, the people who are doing contact tracing now, and they're in the hundreds, uh, also have other work. So we want to uh, should levels be maintained at the current levels, be able to free them up to do other work, for example, other immunizations for measles and other things. Those are examples of that, but all the work that public health does to keep people healthy. So we need to expand our capacity in the community, right? And if there's a significant surge in the fall, we have to have people in place and the means in place to address the worst-case scenarios. And that's why we're going to have um, we're close to doubling our contact tracing capacity here around that. Uh, we also need to increase our testing capacity because in the fall, we're going to see a flu and cold season. Now, COVID-19 in March and April came at the end of that season, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but people who have colds or have the flu have very similar symptoms to COVID-19. So our, our need, the requirement to test is going to be very important. And we're going to be taking other steps to ensure that to try and ensure that this is a low-level year for the flu because that adds capacity in our hospitals as well. And so we have a series of plans. I think we've done more work in the last month than we've done at any time since the beginning of the COVID-19 um, pandemic in, to prepare for what um, uh, what may come in the fall. And so we're prepared for all of the worst-case scenarios, and that's what we did in March, and that's what we're doing now.
And hopefully it is a good opportunity to reiterate and remind our listener uh, and to spread the word on this. If you have any symptoms of any kind, do not leave your house. now, Not now and especially moving into the fall. That is the new normal. We are no longer working under the weather. Under the weather means stay in your room, even isolate from your family members or those who live in your family bubble. I want to get a little bit into back to school with you, if you don't mind, Minister Dix. Um, I got an email from one parent. I got a number of questions from listeners, um, but I know your time is short here. But one parent really, it, it peaked with me. He, he sent me a note saying he has a special needs child, And he's wondering, he's looking for any flexibility on return to school, a seven-year-old on the spectrum, his wife immunocompromised, and doesn't want to lose that spot in the school. Will some of these things be addressed in the the days and weeks to come, and and certainly by August 26th as the target date? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons, and there's a very intense debate about about schools right now on Mm -hmm. social media and the community, and I hear it, you know, um, uh, people... uh, uh, parents are anxious. Teachers are anxious. Well, uh, all I can say, Jody, is I'm anxious. Right? Me too. And yeah. and so when we opened in June, we opened every school in the province in June in a particular way. We were the only province to do so. There was a lot of anxiety then, and we um, followed public health direction. We adjusted to circumstances, and we had a pretty successful month. Right now, it's not the same as it's going to be in September, but we had a pretty successful month. The 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 guidelines were put out on June 29th. Why? So that gave, just like when we put out guidelines for businesses at the beginning of May, it gave people some time to prepare for the for what was ahead. And so everybody in public education is working on those questions. And for that parent, I absolutely understand their concern and their anxiety. I kind of live it. And, and I think probably you live it as well, because we have um, family members who are vulnerable, and I have type 1 diabetes. I'm vulnerable to the mm-hmm. consequences of COVID-19, so I'm very conscious of this, and I think of all the children who are in my circumstance who have type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes. So I think what the schools will be doing is absolutely responding to the concerns of people like your listener, and we just have to do the work through this process. And I know everyone says, well, we want to have all the answers now. Well, the reason the guidelines were put out then was that all the many people who are working full out in education right now have had time to prepare for all the specific circumstances in all the different schools. We have some brand new schools, and we have some beautiful old schools, and all of them have different circumstances. And so that's what's happening right now. And I know people are frustrated and they want all the answers immediately, but we're going to be, and we need to be in this area methodical, and we need to view the evidence in front of us. And later today, Dr. Henry, and I think CKNW generally has been broadcasting these things live, the, that at 3 o'clock, Dr. Henry will be taking people through the modeling uh, and what we see in the, in the coming days so that all of the information we have on which we base our decisions will be available to the public again. And we've repeatedly done this. And I think that's important to share information and to share common cause. And uh, the final thing I just want to say about schools yeah. This is true of surgeries and visits in long-term care. And I saw from uh, saw your Twitter feed because people were suggesting questions for people in long-term yes. care. Is that our success in these areas really depends on the people listening to us and all those other people? We have 150,000 people who work in healthcare. We have 50,000 people who work in long-term care. And when there's transmission in the community, it's going to affect those people. There's too many of them. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's our responsibility to one another, to the ones that we love and the ones that we don't know. And that's why it's so important right now, um, for example, not to be hosting private parties. It's our responsibility to each other. And it's not, I, I hate to say it, but it's not such a big sacrifice to make for other people's health and well-being. Agreed. I I'm, I know I promised to have you uh, off the air uh, at a certain time, but I got to squeeze in this the one more question, and no it, it can no be problem. a brief. Mandatory masks in public spaces. Numerous asks on that. Can you reiterate, reiterate why Dr. Henry rather strictly avoids using the word mandatory? Well, for this reason, that, that we want to be effective. Like I think, first of all, there's a concern, I think, around the use of masks. The people think it's some sort of silver bullet. It's not. The most effective means of stopping transmission are physical distancing, our environmental barriers, our rules such as limits on gatherings, right? Masks mm-hmm. can be important, too. Every time I go to a grocery store or another store, I wear a mask. Every time. And I recommend and suggest that people do that. There are some people that um, can't wear a mask for a variety of reasons. Right, and there is a significant challenge of enforcement. Right, so masks can help all these other things, but they're not a replacement for them. I think everybody wants a silver bullet. Everyone wants something that allows us to do a bunch of things, but uh, this isn't it. But it can be helpful. And so when Dr. Bonnie Henry goes shopping, I know this because I talk to her every single day. She uh, she wears a mask, and I recommend when people are in public spaces where they don't know that they can guarantee physical distancing to wear a mask. How about that? That is the perfect place to leave this. Thank you so much for your time. As always, it's appreciated. Hey, right on. Anytime. Take care, Jody. Jody Vance in for Mike this week. Um, Time to switch gears to another crisis that has hit British Columbia and certainly Metro Vancouver, the affordability crisis, the housing crisis. With constant discussion over housing needs and lack of affordability in Vancouver this week, Vancouver City Council were actually split on a vote to expedite building rental housing. Yes, that's what happened. When it came time to vote, it was six to five to defer for, you guessed it, more consultation. It was really quite something when that moved on social media and then read this article, great article. In fact, if you want all the details on it, uh, Dan Fumano's article in the Vancouver Sun uh, explains it in in great detail. Five members uh, felt council should be uh, acting as quickly as possible to get rental homes built. Some thought uh, maybe we need more time, but it wasn't worth rushing. And one questioned the need to boost rental construction at all. Again, Uh, I urge you to read the uh, article, The Jumping Off Point, here is in the Vancouver Sun, written by Dan Fumano. Right now, though, we want to talk it through with a Vancouver city councillor in our friend Rebecca Bly, joining us on the line. Hello there. Hi, Jody. I'd love to talk this through with you. Can you give give us a bit of a timeline of of what this council meeting in particular was like? Uh, Absolutely. So the um, meeting itself um, completed at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, July 24th, after uh, a number of um, scheduled public hearings uh, in the month of July, as we uh, sort of ramped up to break in August um, from council. So we had uh, a number of projects on this particular agenda. This was the last one and uh, with speakers and um, discussion, it pushed into the late hours of Friday night uh, at the end of July. 
So what was on the table here from reading the column that I keep referencing in the in the sun that council was considering zoning amendments that would basically make it easier for developers to build six story mixed use developments along commercial streets, two floors more than the four already allowed there, if the residential portion of the building is rental instead of market condo. Is that right? That's right. It doesn't cost much more to build up two floors. It doesn't radically change whatever view cones or um, shadows and shade. What is the pushback on not just getting started on on building? These will already take two or three years uh, to get through the whole process and actually come onto market, right? Yes. I mean, with construction and, and other delays, for sure, it would take about that long. Um the the motion itself uh, was amended with a referral motion by Councillor Carr um, to refer this report to um, our rental housing stock official development plan that's scheduled to come back in November to Council um, with the proposition that these areas in the city, we call them C2 zones, that are not under current neighbourhood plans, could be folded into the rental housing stock ODP for short. So that was a major part of the referral amendment that split council, as you said, six to five. Um, and, and then the second part of that, of course, is we do have an existing ongoing Vancouver plan process um, that sort of gives us the mechanism to enable more consultation, as you say. Yeah, the ongoing process and the more <laughs> consultation and the deferral for so many people who are saying, I need a place to live and I don't want to have to move out of Vancouver and commute into the city in order to do the job that I cannot do from home. There's a lot of frustration around this, Rebecca, as I know you are aware. How do we manage that? Right. And I'm fully aware, which is why uh, I voted in favor for the majority of rental housing development projects that have come to council over the mm-hmm. last two years. Um, the issue, as you pointed out, is yes, there are many people um, that are looking for rental homes. The issue that I have had with the C2 zones and this proposal, and we really started talking about this more than eight months ago, is that these areas have existing affordable rental in them. So, what we're saying is we want to, to knock down those buildings where people live, renters, right now, and build new rental hmm. that is going to be not affordable to the same group of people. The other issue is that a lot of these zones um, are old rental stock, as I say, so they also have an older population. Um, there are areas that are not covered under neighborhood plans, which is what this uh, motion, this application, was um, <clears throat> trying to uh, um, amend. These are areas where people have been living for 15, 20 years in a rental unit and their their rents are well below market rents. And the concern is that this policy did not um, uh, have any safeguards for right, those no types of... Te- there's no protection. So the, yeah. the great thing about the rental housing ODP that's coming back to council in November, as I said, is that it does have all of those things. It has a one-to-one replacement. So if you're going to build new rental, you also have to build one-to-one replacement for what's affordable. And also, if that can't be done, there's a tenant relocation plan. Uh, 35% of the units need to be geared towards families for two and three bedrooms because we really do need more of those. We're hearing from the public we need those. 
And it also promotes retrofits and upgrades wherever possible. So... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry, my, my what happens in my mind, and I'm certainly not immersed in the politics of this and the red sure. tape nature of this. But every time you say that's coming in November, it's like we've been as a as a taxpaying public screaming for this to be on the table two years ago. Why why are we waiting until November for this to hit the table? Well, I think there's a process in in, in play. Uh, staff schedule these. Um, uh, you know, schedule in in conjunction with the mayor's office to bring reports to council. Um, they do take time. The reports are quite dense. The information's dense. The research and consultation's dense. So, um, you know, why it takes until November, I'm not sure in terms right. of, you know, why not now? I mean, we've been dealing with a regulatory review, which is actually, uh, I think, a bigger topic that we're not focusing on here. We've heard from the development industry. There's a lot of red tape. It takes a long time to get projects through. Jody Vanson for Mike this week. I'm chatting with Rebecca Bly, a Vancouver City Councillor. We started at the jumping off point of this Dan Fumano article in the Vancouver Sun that sort of goes over a council meeting earlier this week where council was considering zoning amendments that would basically make it easier for developers to build six-story mixed-use developments along many commercial streets with two floors more than the four already allowed there. Uh, if the residential portion of the building is rental instead of market condos. And just in my short chat prior to the break with you, Rebecca, you educated me on a couple of things that I think are vitally important here. And in in that, the people that would be displaced in order to build these new developments uh, are people that are long-term renters at a much lower rent. And and some of the most frustrating pieces of uh, watching the the need for affordable rental units for 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 families and individuals in in Vancouver, it, just it seems like delay after delay after delay. And just as we were going to break there, you said what we really should be talking about is a regulatory review. And I want you to now explain to me what we really should be talking about. What does that mean? What is the re- regulatory review? Uh, so yeah. The regulatory review is a process that uh, was started um, at the beginning of our term, um, actually before our term, um, uh, to take our planning processes and policies and our our, um, development permit processing and policies, overlap them and simplify them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an improvement. We haven't even talked about the businesses in the C2 zone, so hopefully we'll get to that. We talked about the residences, but there's also businesses, legacy businesses. But what it does is it simplifies processes for businesses, for new residential development. Um, it cuts the red tape. It streamlines um, things, uh, streamlines um, wh- and outlines what the development uh, companies need to do, what our builders need to do to get the jobs done. Um, there's overlapping housing policies that haven't been updated for decades. And we know that there's a modernization in government that has to be at the forefront now. We see that with the provincial government, but also local governments to, to sort of get ourselves into this decade, this century, and bring Mm -hmm. all of those decades of policies into the future, because that's really what guides and decides things. Council Yes, ratifies those decisions, but we need it. We need a more robust framework that's far, 
for clearer for everybody that needs to use it. Um, people are going outside of Vancouver uh, to build because it's simpler outside of Vancouver, regardless of the council decision. So I think we need to really look there. And one thing to point out is the mayor, uh, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, brought forward an initiative to uh, eliminate what's called a letter of inquiry which has actually become normalized in our processes, but isn't actually required under the Charter. So that was a great policy, I think, because it leaves it up to developers whether or not they're going to simply submit an application and take on the risk, knowing that they've done their due diligence to put forward a plan that is uh, likely to be approved by council because it's balanced and it, it sort of serves the need. That was supported by council, that was supported by myself, I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, I think staff would have preferred the letter of inquiry to stay in place, but it wasn't required into the charter or the provincial guidelines. That's a great initiative that came forward. So we need to recognize that we are doing things as a council. Sweeping changes to areas that have legacy businesses and existing affordable rental stock has to be done in a very careful way because we right. could then be known for a council that displaced hundreds and thousands of people hundreds or thousands, not and thousands, right, right. Uh, you know, and, and, and businesses that then cannot afford to rent in these new six-story rental buildings. Keep in mind, we have a pipeline full of developments like this. It's not like they're not going to be built. It's just what we're saying is we're going to we're going to look at the merit of each application in each neighborhood and make sure that it hits the mark. And that's what we've been elected to do. So I'm not sure why... Um, you know, uh, it would it would be in the best interest of the public for us to sidestep that. And if we do find that we can do this in a way where those uh, protections are in place for you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, we are in a housing crisis, but we're also in an affordability crisis. And that hits mm -hmm. businesses as well. So, you know, as a counselor, I'm looking at all of those um those uh, issues that are very salient to the people of the city and also balancing the need to create new housing for people who do want to move into the city, which is also very important. It's not an uh, easy I'm, job, but it's the one we're doing. It, it is not an easy job. And I, de I so much appreciate you taking the time to sort of explain it and walk us through it. Because as you said, there's a lot of red tape involved with what you just explained right there. And in, in as a born and raised Vancouverite, I love my city and it upsets me when I see the number of people having to leave it because the mm -hmm. rentals are so incredibly expensive. I mean, I still remember my first 400 square foot studio apartment, 2057 West 2nd Avenue, down in the heart of Kitsilano. It overlooked the laneway. The windows opened into where the parking, the cars parked. It was an, it was just the, the worst spot and the best spot because I could afford it at the time. But it was parquet flooring and a teeny tiny kitchen and a little postage stamp of a bathroom that I think was like Pepto-Bismol pink. I mean, the, where, where are the rentals that aren't pretty, that don't have bamboo flooring and, and you know, fancy schmancy lights that you can, whatever, snap your yeah. fingers or use your phone to do like, where are, can they we get to a point? In this, they are in the C2 zones that were in this application. Can we not That's build more are. of those, though? That's my question. Like, why there is city land, they check boxes, they can help people who need affordable rental, people that are working for or at the poverty line, minimum wage or just barely above the poverty line should be able to afford a rental. 
I absolutely agree with you. And the way that we are tackling that issue now is embedding uh, what's called, quote unquote, social housing, although it's really just below market rental, which needs to be built in conjunction with other development that um, that is, pays the bills. Yeah. That pays the bills, right? Yep, so, yep. Develop, no, you I know, get I get it. builders yep. have to be able to run their business. We yeah. and we need them in order to build the stock. They should um, make a profit. They should be allowed to make a profit. They builders have, well, aren't they, they are the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I get yeah. it. I get it, Rebecca. But my feeling is that where can we find a way to re-implement what, what facilitated having that swath of Kitsilano back in the day? How can we find more places and spaces that, that is already city-owned land and maybe get the permits to build those units to jump the line of red tape in the permitting office? And that's not a slight against the people working in that office. Everybody's working as hard as they possibly can at City Hall. So I'm not, I'm not railing on the people behind the scenes who are doing their very best here, but what is it? Where are the roadblocks, I guess, is is my question. Well, I think, you know, you hit on something very important, which is city-owned land um, and our opportunity to leverage this land um, with partners, senior levels of government who are in the business of jurisdictionally mandate to build that housing. Um, We have a number of, our job is to really create the policies and enable that in the fastest way possible. So we have a number of policies. We have what's called a short program. Um, All of these are uh, in place in order to expedite um, uh, developments that meet that housing need that you're describing. Um, And right now we have, you know, a, a large part of our housing crisis is is really like well below market housing, what we call um, housing income limits, meaning you 30% of your income goes to housing. And for many of those people, their incomes are 30 to 70,000, 30 to 50,000. We don't have any of that housing anymore. And so city-owned land needs to be, through temporary modular housing and other initiatives, uh, needs to enable more of that housing that supports people because we know that housing is a critical part of people being able to um, come out of some struggle, some whatever the struggles are, whatever the challenging times are, to be able to stabilize their lives and 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 sort of reintegrate into being um, able to provide for themselves and things like that. So we, and, and the mental health component that goes with that. So city owned land is right now, it's a balancing act between providing for that kind of housing while also uh, ensuring that we're able to um, do everything we can to leverage uh, affordable rental units embedded in other um, developments and other housing initiatives. Yeah. Amen. And thank you for explaining it and talking it through. And there are many people listening right now that understand it just a little bit better, because I know I understand it a little bit better having spoken with you for the last 20 minutes or so. Thank you very much, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jody. When it comes to things like uh, private parties, uh, people flaunting uh, the uh, restriction on the number of uh, faces in the smaller spaces. And so we're going to be looking hard at enforcement when it comes to situations like that. We don't want to do that. We prefer uh, the good judgment of British Columbians, but those tools are available to us and they're uh, escalating, starting with warnings, of course, and then uh, getting into more severe penalties. That is Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday at his press briefing. Uh, very stern words from uh, the fun dad, usually 
typically Horgan sort of comes across as the fun dad and wants to play along a little bit, but not so when it comes to the COVID-19 numbers announced on your Wednesday. It is time for Baldry's Beat to talk all of this and much more through Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, is on the line. Hey, Keith. Hey. Uh, that clip that we heard we actually uh watched you sort of sort of reinforce what premier horgan was saying last night on the news hour at six and thought maybe we could unpack that a little bit here off the top Mm -hmm. yeah premier dad um yeah it's um (laughs) uh, you know for all that dr bonnie henry is is very sort of um reluctant to play the heavy hand i think uh john horgan is the opposite of that uh he doesn't brook much nonsense and i think that was an interesting warning he issued yesterday. It's still not clear exactly what tools he or the government would have at their disposal to break up parties. A lot of that is municipal powers. It's not necessarily provincial powers. But obviously expressing frustration yesterday to seeing this ongoing behavior of large uh, private gatherings of predominantly young people between the ages of 20 and 30, and as a result, you're seeing a big spike of the of the numbers. I looked at the the 85 cases yesterday. I think took a lot of people's breath away that we we were down to 10 a day uh, just a month ago, and now 85 in one day, the third largest number of uh, positive cases since the pandemic began. And you drill down in the numbers, and the largest uh, the co- the age cohort that has the largest numbers is the 20 to 29 crowd. And that's, uh, you know, they had 39% of the, of the numbers assigned to age groups yesterday. And that's, a, that's a, when they only represent 13% of the population, you know something's going wrong there. And uh, John Horgan calling them out on it. But again, it's not entirely clear what he would be able to do about it. Interesting, as I've often said, you're the best follow on Twitter. And I see a lot of people doing, close the bars. I loved your response to that. Yeah, the problem with closing the bars is you just drive um, certain activity underground. And the bars right now and pubs and restaurants, they're open and they're subject to regulation and they're subject to inspection. And there are, of course, uh, scoff laws and violators uh, out there. But by and large, uh, my understanding is most people or most establishments are obeying the rules. Of You know, you can't have more than X number of people in your in your establishment, you can't have more than six people at, your, at, a, at a table. The tables have to be two meters apart. There are exceptions to that. We do get reports of people, uh, and Dr. Bonnie Henry has talked about this. Uh, you cannot, you know, table hop. You don't gather in large groups around tables. But at the most part, uh, there's, you know, thousands of these establishments, and they're regulated. If you suddenly were to close everything, you would just drive this behavior, this need to social gather with your friends and and your colleagues underground uh, into people's homes where there would be no regulation and there would be no inspections and where the chance for spreading the virus would be exponentially greater than it exists right now in open establishments that are subject to rules. So no, don't close the bars and restaurants and pubs. Keep them open, but subject them to regulation and, and hope that for you know the better good of everyone, people obey the rules. There will be some exceptions to this, but I think they will be the exceptions rather than the rules. Right. And going back to the enforcement piece, because I had a personal experience. I was at, at a friend of mine, uh, 
doing the social distancing. There were four of us sitting in the huge uh, yard uh, down the street. She was waiting to to go in for surgery. So everybody's bubble was super tight to protect her. Mm-hmm. So it was just us. And then walking home, I, I walked by I, uh, the sound, that din of a party that you know. It's like that's a group of people. And I looked over and there was one of those white tents, party tents. And there it was just teeming with people. And I thought, oh. God, this was weeks ago, weeks and weeks ago. And I thought if I, if there were an, a, a number to call and email to send, I'd probably be a little bit of a cop right here. I'd probably just say, can somebody just go tell those people to not do that? Yeah. You know, and this is where I think we, um, we may be headed for, with some people. There's been this simmering resent, I think, amongst a lot of people who, look at people not really following public health protocols and wanting to blow the whistle on them and wanting to to phone in somewhere and, and tell on them. Um, I don't want to be sure. that guy. Yeah, and I'm not sure guy. that we've got any system set up for something like that. I mean, yeah. you can work phone work APC, you can work pub, phone public health. My information, my understanding is people working public health right now are, are worked off their feet yeah. as they try to come to grips with this pandemic and, and just keeping on top of, the, of where the virus is and, and how it's moving. I don't think they have a lot of time for home inspections right now. No, they certainly don't. And 500 new uh, contact tracers have been hired, uh, probably as Adrian Dix, Health Minister Adrian Dix said earlier on the program, probably a preparation for uh, what might be a surge in the fall? Yeah, so you've got a, you could have a, a surge, a second wave. You've also got the flu season coming in, the respiratory illness season. Uh, so we're going to have uh, a heck of a lot of contact tracers who are going to play a fundamental role in uh, combating this, any resurgence of the virus or, again, in coupling with uh, the flu season, um, a scenario we'd never come We've never been familiar with. We never come to grips with anything like this before. So, no. they are out there to identify as quickly as possible where a person who's had the virus has been and who they've talked to, and try to contain the spread of that virus as quickly as possible. And so, literally, they are working, um, you know, by the hour to try to find as uh, quickly as possible where the virus has been. And 500 people is a lot, but keep in mind, we've already got about 400 people doing this work right now. Some of those the people doing it right now are going to be go back to their jobs that where they've been seconded from, which are generally nurses, nurse practitioners, public health officials, community health nurses, uh, and, and others will step in to, to fill that void. But we're going to have more than 500 people engaged in this activity come September. I think there's a call to all of us in society to really start to track our contacts so to make those jobs easier. Because this isn't about if you have risky behavior. You could just be ha- having randomly been in, in, this, in mm-hmm. the same establishment for a short period of time and, and somebody else in that establishment had tested positive and now you need to go through your contacts for 14 days. It's, we all need to sort of be aware of where we've been and who we've been near. Exactly. You know, right now there's more than 1,900 people in self-isolation. A lot of them had no idea that they had come in contact with the virus, and and they were interviewed by contact tracers, which is why they find themselves in the situation they're in, because as contact tracers discovered in interviewing them, that they had become, they had been uh, inadvertently in many cases exposed to the virus because of a a family member or an associate, a work colleague, had gone to a a situation or contracted the virus themselves and brought it back into the 
into the home or the workplace. And as a result, these people have found themselves now out of the community for two weeks. And this is the uh, insidious part of this virus. It's not just people who get sick. It's people who, through no fault of their own, find themselves exposed to this, sometimes through someone's ill behavior, but often through someone's perfectly innocent behavior. And as a result, they have to literally hunker down in the basement, take themselves off the job, out of the community, away from friends, away from family, and, and wait it out for two weeks. And 1,900 people, That just to put this in perspective, at this time last week, I think we were talking 1,000 people. Now we're at 1,900 people, and that number's going to grow. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and it is Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, breaking down what is the hot topic uh, ongoing, COVID-19 and the uh, echo effects uh, and impacts of this global pandemic. And Keith, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about expectations for this afternoon's new modelling that is expected at 3 o'clock. Yeah, so we're going to get an update on our... um uh, sort of our, our behaviors that we've seen our, as we come out into this new phase, the new stage of um, of more contacts with people. And how, um, as we've seen in previous modeling, how much more shopping is going on, how much more activity is going on, how much more um, in our daily lives, how we're expanding our universe and our contacts, and also our, our personal contacts as well. So we're going to get some new numbers on that. Also some new, uh, just sort of an update on our... Um, where the case numbers are, uh, and and what's interesting in the last few days, if not a week, um, and I've gone over these numbers with Health Minister Adrian Dix, is that we've seen a resurgence of the virus in one area in particular, and that's the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. That was tracking along at pretty low numbers for some time. Uh, Where where COVID-19 was more evident was in the Fraser Health Authority, particularly Fraser East, uh, in Chilliwack, Abbotsford, Hope, that those areas were were, where the the bigger numbers were. Suddenly, the numbers in Vancouver Coastal, so Vancouver, uh, Richmond, North Shore, have suddenly gone up significantly. We were at 41, I think, 41 or, you know, low 40 active cases uh, a little more than a week ago. We're now over 200 active cases in Vancouver Coastal, and that is a reflection of the parties that we saw uh, more than a week ago in Vancouver Coastal where people gathered in large gatherings, and as a result, there was a mass spread of the virus. Uh, it, was, it was spread in, that, uh, in those close quarters and then further out in the community to families and, and friends and associates of people who went to these parties. So that's also going to be part of the modeling today as well. And also, again, just a reminder of um, the charts we've been getting of where the hospitalizations could get to if we're not careful in terms of as we expand our bubble and our contacts, uh, the numbers are going up. The hospitalization rates have not gone up yet, which is great news, but they could. And I think the model will show us just where we could be headed if we don't get ourselves under control. All right, let's get to the callers. Uh, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Matt in Burnaby, you're up first. What's your question for Keith? Jody, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, I'm my first first time calling you. Um, I really want to talk about the issue of masks. I am most perturbed with Adrian Dix uh, and Dr. Henry. Um, you know, the science is clear. Um, the, the study of aerosols has made it evident that in closed rooms, uh, the, the virus will hang in the air for between one and three hours. 
Um, other provinces, uh, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, have all mandated mask wearing, particularly for closed places like uh, stores and uh, and clothing stores and other uh, places where people can't keep six feet apart. Why on earth, when it's such a simple fix and relatively inexpensive, do they not mandate wearing masks um, in all enclosed places where you cannot uh, distance yourself? And it just seems like a simple fix or at least part of a fix to the problem. And yet we can't seem to get Dr. Henry to move off her position on that, even though the science is in. Thanks for the call, Matt. Uh, I know you've got the answer here, Keith. Well, the science isn't all in on this, although there is increasing evidence that mask wearing is uh, is a, a good preventative measure. Now, uh, to dial it back a bit, provinces have varying degrees of mask rules. And, and people say, oh, in Alberta, for example, mandatory mask in schools. That's what the headline said on the news release, but that's not what the policy is. Uh, there are exceptions and loopholes to all provinces' mask rules. Uh, but where we're headed, I think, is uh, not through so much through public order or, or public fiat uh, from Do- Dr. Bonnie Henry or anyone else, is just a, a natural progression of uh, individuals and establishments moving towards requiring the wearing of masks. And I think what you're going to see is stores taking it upon themselves. They don't need an order from Dr. Bonnie Henry or anyone else to uh, say you can't come in the store without a mask on. And I think that's where we're, I think we're evolving to that situation, Jody. I think you're going to see in schools that uh, there's no uh, ironclad rule, but over the course of the school year, it will become a cool thing to wear a mask. There are going to be a lot of masks available to students and teachers. And I would suspect by the time we get into deep into the fall, the vast majority of people in schools are going to be wearing masks. Again, it will happen not because of public health orders, but just because that's where we're evolving as as a society. And it's the right thing to do. It's mm-hmm. the act of kindness to your community. Let's go to John in Delta. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, good morning, and uh, thank you, Jody and Keith. Um, on simple question, uh, the World Health Organization doesn't want you to go to, to a dentist unless it's essential. And I just, and my 96-year-old mother just went two days ago. So um, has Keith got an opinion? And if, if Dr. Henry can have one, that would be great to hear hers too later. Well, a, a dentist has been, has been a bit of a challenge to open up dentist offices. I've heard from a lot of dentists and dental hygienists who, you know, how do you, how can you protect yourself both sides in terms of when you've got open mouth and, and droplets, you know, flying around in a dentist office. It is a challenge, and that's why that, that's why the advice in World Health Organization is to minimize activities in in that situation as much as you can. Having said that, I think some, just anecdotally. More dentist offices are opening up, uh, and uh, they seem to be doing it quite with uh, quite safely. They are, uh, they can call on WorkSafe BC for guidelines and advice and public health for for just how to do this as as uh, safely as possible. And I just think it's another one of these things, Jody, where two months ago we we just couldn't imagine, or three months ago, imagine a number of businesses operating. We thought, oh my goodness, how can they ever open again? Yet we're seeing yeah. all sorts of openings on all sorts of fronts. Now we've got the NHL playing, for goodness sakes, in playoffs when that didn't seem even even remotely feasible three months ago. So uh, dentists fall into that group of a, a challenged sector, but it is going to start um, not thriving but opening again. 
slowly, methodically, as safely as possible, mm-hmm. keeping risk as low as possible. So, Keith, here, Keith, as always, such a pleasure. It always flies by. I'll see you right back here Talk for the well. Friday edition. Thank you so much, Keith Thanks. Baldry. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Baldry's Beat, Jody Vance in for Mike this week and next week for that matter. Today I'm really happy to connect with Sandy Garasino, a former trial lawyer, columnist at the National Observer. Uh, Sandy, thanks for taking some time out for us today. Great to talk to you, Jody. I love cho- just talking through the politics with you. You always come from a very frank and honest, clear position and perspective. And today's topic particularly excites me that I get to talk it through with you uh, as we are standing in a moment of history as uh, Kamala Harris has become Joe Biden's running mate for the 2020 U.S. presidential election, becoming the the first African-American and first Asian-American to be chosen as a running mate of a major party's presidential candidate. That's goosebump inducing for uh, for many of us. It sure is. And let's let's hope it really is history and not history, if you know what I mean. Yeah, (laughs) right. Back at Geraldine Ferraro and 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 some others, um, it would be wonderful to see uh, Kamala Harris actually step into the role itself. Are you surprised by the reaction to this, like on both ends of the spectrum? They raised an un- unbelievable sum of money in the first 24 hours since uh, it was announced that she would be Joe Biden's running mate. Yeah, what did that number come in at? I've, I've, I've seen different ones, but it was... It was $26 I, I, million as I saw. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the. That's it could the be higher by now. That, yeah, that's the final number that I saw. I, I, I am surprised. I'm sure there's always uh, theater around this. I'm sure there. It was always anticipated that okay, when when the announcement comes, we want to see a big donate. You know, so there were there were a lot of uh, uh, shall we say theatrical donations that were timed to to create an impression. Oh, but still, yes. when you look at the number, I think there was something like 150,000 small new small donors. That doesn't get uh, rigged. Um, but how gullible I, am I, eh? I, I just bit right into that. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, but that's what it's all for. That's the totally. Show, it worked, Jody. though. I know it worked. It worked on me. I know I'm glad to be, I'm glad to have an aha moment right here authentically on the air because I was like, wow, people must be really, really excited. Of course, there was a build up to this. Of course, there was a hold off as soon as we announce, then you donate because it'll look great. But then again, then again, you see those the huge number of first-time donors that came in. 
this is a galvanizing moment, especially um, what we're hearing from African-American women. Um, I was surprised at, at how many people indicated, you know, people who are old, long in the tooth, um, um, political hands who were really, really deeply moved by the moment. Because I think a lot of people, um, even though some parts of Kamala Harris's um, uh, background make her kind of an obvious pick. I think um, for a lot of people, she is also the real deal. This is not a uh, Sarah Palin. This is not a surprise candidate pick from somewhere. This is somebody who has been preparing for this moment her entire professional career. And interesting, too, and let's just dial back, Sandia, to uh, that moment that was really the first big debate moment in the Democratic nomination process where Kamala, abs- or Ms. Harris, um, really knocked back Joe Biden and, and had a surge as a result when Joe Biden was was talking about busing and, and that, you know, and sort of going on mm-hmm. about a, a, the little girl and, and Kamala Harris just turns and goes, I was that girl. Like mm-hmm. she's capable of those moments, but there was the, the conversations leading up to her being announced as the running mate uh, because she was so powerful because she had that great moment. People were like, maybe Joe Biden doesn't like her enough since she did that. And I thought, God, no one would ever say that about a man in politics. She's well, really got that going. <clears throat> she does have that going, but that is, isn't that interesting how women do uh, as a group kind of spite, spark an emotional reaction? It's funny how often women are accused of being emotional, but actually men are really good at masking how very deeply emotional they are because I don't mm. think that would have been a disqualifying moment um, for um, another man. But I also think that it speaks very highly of Joe Biden himself, that he's, it does. you know, <laughs> that this is not a man who has a confidence problem, that if he's challenged on something, doesn't, um, isn't prepared to still overlook um, something that might have been an embarrassing moment and turn it in and turn it into a positive. Because he absolutely, there's no question, that campaign needs to see African-American turnout. What's been interesting in the polls is that um, the white voters, and particularly the college-educated white voters, but not just them, suburban white women, um, whether college-educated or not, are moving, have been moving in very, very large numbers over to the Biden camp, but he has been underperforming Hillary Clinton amongst black, African-American um, and Hispanic voters. Uh, so it's, this is a very interesting dynamic, and I think it was a very calculated play in that way. And it really does work. As you said, it, it, it invigorates. And, and some are like, oh, will it overshadow Biden? Who cares? It is, it is that invigorating piece of this puzzle. I was rather blown away at the veracity and the immediacy of the attack ads. I mean, it wasn't even two seconds out of Joe Biden's mouth who his running mate would be. And then it was just like the Trump cam- campaign threw everything in the kitchen sink out the window, including now birtherism. Are we doing this again? Well, apparently we are, but how well did it work the last time it was tried? Right. 
Good, you know, good point, Sandy. You know, Barack Obama to this day is vastly more popular than Donald Trump has ever been in his entire presidency. All of the things that they think work and that to a certain extent worked against Hillary Clinton, I don't think are so far even denting the Biden campaign. It's just not having an impact. I mean, they have been preparing the same way as the Democrats have been preparing to roll out the vice presidential candidate, whoever it is. Um, the, the Trump campaign, you can bet, they've been wargaming this whole moment. They were ready for whoever the candidate was going to be. They would be coming out with their, you know, these are insane communist socialists who are, you know, what's the latest? Trump was saying today, they don't even want you to have cows or even animals. (laughs) Oh, no, he didn't really? Oh, my goodness. Google it. I think I saw that cross my Twitter thread. Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and I'm alongside good friend and colleague Sandy Garasino, former trial lawyer, columnist at the National Observer, and our subject matter today is Kamala Harris, uh, because this is a moment in time, Sandy, you and I were talking before the break, that deserves being marked. As you mentioned, this woman, this person, this human, was literally born to do the job that she has just been anointed with the possibility of becoming vice president of the United States along Joe Biden. She has literally worked her way up. Reading her bio is like reading um, a novel that has twists and turns and details that if you just skip along the surface, you're going to miss out. That's true. Um, And, and, uh, you know, she has been on my radar for many years, probably you know, eight or eight or nine years anyway, long before she was a national figure. She first came to my attention because, I've, of course, I've been very concerned for a long time about uh, technology and where we're going in the, and the um, corporate tech sector. And as Attorney General of California, she introduced the first legislation addressing technology and children. And I was, I've been watching her carefully ever since that time, which I think was about eight years ago. And she is very, very focused on uh, and and deeply understands as a former attorney general, as a former um, uh, coming up through the ranks as a deputy district attorney, um, working in the criminal justice system and attempting, working to um, enact criminal justice reform. She has been on the front lines of and deeply understands um, the, the instruments and tools of power and how they operate on, on, the, on the lives of ordinary citizens and especially the most vulnerable. And, and uh, so it's very, very exciting to see her uh, step into this role. And especially as a member of minority, both as um, an African-American woman, being part of the African-American community, but also as an Indian American woman um, and as the child of ultra high achievers herself. Yeah. Her mother was a university professor and researcher, a cancer, and, and uh, taught, taught at McGill University, actually, for part of her yeah. years. And her father, an economics professor. I mean, this is a woman who has been prepared from childhood to step onto the national stage. So it's very exciting to see. 
And it even goes beyond that. I, all of what you say is just so important that people understand and consume. This is not just uh, this is not just window dressing and and f- checking a, a box off of uh, you know some diversity piece in the U.S. Mm-hmm. political game. This is so much broader exactly. than that. And even even dialing back Kamala Harris's history as a child. And mm-hmm. her parents, those those high achievers who would take her, uh, they were both activists. She was at um, so many um, rallies as, as a small child. Then her, pa- her parents divorced when she was just seven years old. And she would visit her father in Palo Alto, California on the weekends, a very white neighborhood. Not a, Kids were not allowed to play with her and her mm-hmm. sister because they were black. She dealt with that. She dealt with the, mm-hmm. the busing piece. Then, as you said, moving uh, to Montreal with her mother uh, and mm-hmm. and. And, and living there and and just how she has you know walked the walk and lived you know so many sides of society if somebody wants to challenge this woman on privilege check yourself if somebody wants mm-hmm. to challenge her and the and the way she communicates is so accessible i feel like i know her i think that's true and i think she's extremely media adept very deft and as we've as so many of us who are political junkies like you and me you and uh, I, will yeah, have yeah. followed followed the um, uh, followed her in committee and watched that cross examination skill, yeah. her ability to take on Brett Kavanaugh, her ability to take on uh, U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, and 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 really really challenge them. I mean, I think Mike Pence is in for the fight of his life when that debate happens. And it's probably going to be the most watched vice presidential debate in American history, just because she is such a media magnet. But I want to say something, and I want to say something to um, parents of girls, parents of minority girls. One of the things that has been a challenge that um, Kamala Harris has faced from the left is that, you know, the accusation, oh, she's a cop or she's, because she was a prosecutor. Um, There are two messages that I hope that people will take away uh, from this nomination. Number one, as a woman, and she's been accused of being ambitious. Hell yes, be ambitious. I wish I had been more ambitious, and I call on parents of girls and parents of minority kids, raise your kids to be ambitious Seeking the power to change and the power to do good is important. And if you don't do it, somebody else will. And will they do it as well as you? So learn the instruments of power. And it's also very important, as I say, those tools of power, those tools of state power, it's very very important that people who have a conscience and who who are concerned about the little person in society and the vulnerable and our vulnerable communities do understand how the instruments of state power work. You watch somebody like AOC really become very adept at using those. These are important tools and um, they will be used by other powerful interests, by corporate power and by moneyed interests if people like Kamala Harris uh, don't step up and, and take the reins. I echo your sentiments 100% and would like to add to that. When you feel the pushback on your trajectory to greatness, when you when you aim super high, when you feel the pushback and it gets stronger and stronger, know that you're on the right path. Because pushing yeah. back to those who would take advantage of that, that is that is where you feel that pressure, but it's also where the motivation comes into play. And watching Kamala Harris navigate right now, 
when the pushback is so intense and watching her strategists speak to that, they're like, bring it on. We're ready for all of it because we're done with your noise. We're done with the accusations. And it's just it's just cleaning up of, of what has become such a cesspool. Yeah. And she's no rookie at this game. And no. she's better at it than than they think she is. I, I but at the same time, um, to finish to finish off, you know, it's not usually the vice presidential pick does not make that much of a difference. I was looking at my feed this morning and someone was pointing out, remember when Lloyd Benson totally like for all you kids out there, anybody young, you won't remember this, but some of us of a certain age do when Lloyd Benson um, um, completely, oh, who was the guy that he beat, that he, that he ate his lunch? I mean, the, the best, you're no Jack Kennedy, um, that was delivered was in a vice presidential debate, and that was Michael Dukakis's vice presidential candidate. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, uh, so usually this, this selection does not actually swing an election. It's going to be interest, though, interesting, though, as you mentioned, the, the debate between uh, vice presidential nominee or hopeful in Kamala Harris versus current vice president uh, Mike Pence is October the 7th. And as always, Sandy, I always feel better once we've talked something through, motivated and engaged. I thank you for your time, as always. Thanks so much. Nice to talk, Jody. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Well, he takes a well-deserved vacation. Let's... Uh, continue on with our conversations. Boy, I'm telling you, it is busy on the Twitter today. I actually had to mute a conversation because the info and the reactions were coming so fast and furiously. I couldn't get to anything else on my Twitter feed. So let's let's take a breath. Let's break down some of the COVID-19 numbers here in BC. Let's talk through the realities and the next steps in this pandemic. Very few people are as qualified as our next guest to do so. So to talk through back-to-school anxiety spikes in teachers, plus the cross-cohort realities of the COVID long game, it is time to reconnect with our good friend and one of the very best follows on Twitter, I might add. Jason Tetro is with us. Hello there, Jason. Hello. Oh, boy. You're seeing what's happening on Twitter, aren't you? Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, this is to be expected. Uh, yes. when, when you see something that is all of a sudden coming, coming out of the government, you know that there's going to be a response. And what I find really funny is um, when it comes to education, um, we, we know that there's going to be some kind of a response from teachers and from parents. But one thing that I didn't expect was that the government would actually listen to what the teachers were saying in their survey from back in June, that they didn't want to have these, um, you know, regulations put on them in the last week of August. And so having them now and, and having that ability to look at it at, and, and, you know, discuss it, have the collaborations, discussions, and then, of course, you know, have that orientation as was discussed yesterday. I mean, that's showing that this is going to be a collaborative approach with everybody involved. And you've looked through that survey. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the, the, what you saw back in June is not very different from what you're seeing right now in terms of uh, what, what the concerns are. Um, what the difference is that when you start looking at schools, okay, you, you have to realize something. From a policy angle, schools are still a workplace. Yeah. And so when you look at where the, the guidelines and recommendations are coming from, it's going to come from a workplace environment. And then in that context, 
the students themselves are going to represent a cohort within that workplace. And when it lo- you look at it from there and you start looking at what the actual roles are in terms of your cohorts, it makes a lot of sense. The only thing, the only thing that can seem really odd is the number of people within an actual cohort, which is 60 for elementary and middle and 120 for high school. A lot of people are probably like, their brains are exploding going, wait a minute, that's like <laughs> 10 times more than we normally should have. And and therein lies a bit of that, um, that sandpaper in the conversation, because there are a, a very vocal group on social media for sure, but then there is also this sort of harmonious, let's do what's best here for the children. When we listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry speak about the uh, unintended negative effects of trying to mm-hmm. keep everybody safe from COVID-19, kids have now been out of school for six months. Some will never make up that time. There is no way that we can just keep everybody learning remotely and think that it won't impact an entire generation permanently. I mean, that's that's what the science is, is telling us, right? Well, yeah, when you look at it from the emotional perspective, uh, we pretty much know that you can't um, essentially exist in, in the bubble that people would expect you to be living in in order to prevent this virus from spreading. Um, and, and I think the big problem right now is how do we ensure that we can keep students safe by giving them the opportunity to interact with other students and learn with other students, but at the same time, maintain some kind of bubble mentality like we're seeing with the NHL and the NBA. Um, And and it's very difficult to do that. I I mean, (laughs) there's no real right answer, but one of the things that you can do is if you've got the proper amount of testing and the proper amount of um, tracing. And remember, the only thing that's required from teachers and, and staff is to have lists, lists of the kids' names who are going on buses, lists of the kids' names who are at the school and in the classes and in the cohorts. And then if anyone does come up positive as a result of, you know, maybe it's just symptoms leading to a test or maybe they are having randomized testing as we're seeing in some places, then you have the list of names so you can do the tracing. And I guess what's happening at this point is that there's enough of of an infrastructure, of a framework within the government of British Columbia that you can deal with a 60 or a 120 cohort, whereas before we could only do, you know, 10 to 50. And teachers are not being asked to be epidemiologists here, and some are feeling the pressure that they will be. Mm -hmm. Well, all you need to do is make sure that you have a list. And this is really funny because I come from a world where we're constantly dealing with dangers, and they could be both biological, chemical. And one of the things that we've always talked about was, you know, if you're shipping something from one location to another, the person who's actually driving the truck or flying the plane is not responsible for what is in that box. There are people who are trained to know what to do. All you need to do is make sure that you have a list of what happens to be in your container and whether or not that box is there. And it's the same context. If you are a teacher, if you are a staff member and you have the lists, then it's a phone call away to the right people who know what to do. And so we all have to know where our roles happen to be, but also the limitations of our roles so that we're not 
putting excess pressure. And if you go back to that survey in June, one of the big problems teachers had was that they were overworked. They were worked, you know, more than almost half were working over 40 hours a week. And so as a result of that, it was really putting pressure on them. We don't want them to have the pressure of having to be the epidemiologist as well as the teacher. Mm-hmm. But those lines are clearly defined. They're clearly outlined in the, um, in the regulations and guidelines. So I think we can move forward. And there's been that frustrating piece of, of when I'm saying, you know, I don't think you're listening to the briefing in the same way that I'm listening to the briefing. And the bark back is like, just because you went to school doesn't mean you know what a teacher does. It's like, well, I meant the daughter of a teacher and mm-hmm. my uncle was a teacher. My stepmother was a teacher. My cousin's a teacher. I understand the risks and the, and the commitment that teachers put in every single day in a normal environment and mm-hmm. how tense and tenuous this might be. Also, as a parent, sending uh, my 12-year-old to high school for the first time in a pandemic. At some point, Jason, with the science behind it, must we not trust those who are weighing all of these risks on our behalf? Certainly in British Columbia, we're, we're very lucky to have Dr. Henry, like yourself, somebody yeah. who has been through a pandemic before. Well, exactly. And I mean, I can policy wonk all I want to. I mean, I speak wonk day and night if you want me to. But at the <laughs> end of the wonk. day, it comes down to where well, we're talking about education. So let's just bring it down yeah. to the ABCs of how to deal with a pandemic. Okay. okay. The first one is airway. If we can find ways to be able to protect the airways of individuals who are susceptible or vulnerable to infection, we're not going to have a, a, a risk. The second is the bubble. Okay, And what that means is you're going to understand that there are people who essentially you don't know the status of. And so you want to be sure that you are maintaining a distance from them. You are creating your own bubble. And then finally, the C is cohort. And those are the people who are inside that bubble with you that you can actually um, enjoy the company of. So when it comes to the airway and to the bubble, all of that is already there in the regulations. When it comes to the cohort, we've increased the size. All right. And that's really where the issue is coming from. Can we maintain a really safe environment when we have a cohort that is about 60 to 120 students? Now, the B.C. government believes that this is possible, and I would totally trust them in this. Um, I personally have been always asking, how do we develop those cohorts? And if we do develop cohorts in a particular way, whether it be geospatial based on residence, whether it be uh, based on grades like homerooms, or whether it be based on something else, how do you integrate mixing of those cohorts? And that's where A and B come into play. So really, if we stick to those ABCs, and every time we look at a situation, we do the risk assessment where we go through all those three, we can then identify what works and probably what doesn't. And if it doesn't work in your mind, that's when you have the ability to use your voice because we still have a month before any of this starts. Jody Vance in for Mike this week alongside Jason Tetro, the host of the two-time award-winning Super Awesome Science Show podcast. He is a brilliant. He is an author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files and has the ability of, of relating very uh, heady scientific facts to all of us. So bring your questions. If you're worried about back to school, Jason Tetro has read through all of what is behind the scenes and with the government and the surveys in BC and is ready to take on your concerns, your questions about COVID-19. You ready to go, Jason? I am. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. We start with Bridget in Coquitlam. Welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you very much. 
I just wanted to just say not a question, but how much I agree with what he said and your um, thing about the packages being delivered and you're having a list for them to deliver to a professional if there's a problem that occurs. I thought that was so clear. The teachers, some of them, are taking this totally ridiculously. And um, it's just my, my personal belief sometimes they are, all teachers are all working together and they don't get the vision of what other people in their jobs all have to do sometimes. So they just go crazy. <laughs> Thank you, Bridget. I do have to say one thing, though, and that is um, don't blame the teachers for thinking this way. Everyone's going to think this way when you first hear about these things. It does take some orientation. It does take some time to know exactly what you're going to do, and that's why we have that um, sort of month or even more lead-in plus the orientation. So it's okay for people to be concerned, but overall, at the end of the day, when you find out what it is that you're going to do, it's definitely going to work better. And Jason, when you and I talked through uh, twice now, we've had the conversation, honestly, your next book needs to be Timeline of a Pandemic. We are textbook as to where we are right now. This is the moment where people start to get that edge. You know, there's been so much trust, so much buy-in, so much all-in, so much success in BC. Now the numbers are starting to get go up. We're all facing fall. Is there a second wave? What will school look like? A lot of question marks, a lot of anxiety here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally physical therapy all over again, except it's a psychological one. So if you have an accident and you have a problem with your legs or, or your back and you're slowly coming back, right, you're going to take it in very, very small steps. And that's basically what we've been used to because that's what we've been trained to. And now all of a sudden we're being asked to maybe take a few steps without the walker or the, or the handles. Oh, yeah, that's scary as heck. Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, we wouldn't be asking you to do this if we hadn't done this a million times before. And while we have never done this with COVID, we have done this with flu, we have done this with measles, we have done this with mumps. So remember, this comes from a place where even though it's half a century to a century old, the data is still very relevant to today. All right, let's go back to the phone line. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Patty in Richmond, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, hello to you both and thank you for taking my call. My question is regarding COVID-19 serum antibody testing. Is there a reliable testing available and can anybody get it done? Uh, as far as I know, well, there are definitely reliable serological tests that are out there, and they're growing in number. Um, but, uh, and, and believe me, I would love to have one myself because I want to find too. out what my me antibodies too. are. Me too. Yeah. But the thing is, is um, this is still being controlled by the government in terms of who can and who can't get one. I think what will happen is that when it does start going out to um, the more uh, um, to all the labs, and you have the ability to just check, put it as a check mark like you would a urinalysis, then we'll have it. But we're not at that stage yet. We are not because we also don't know. It's the false sense of security. What what do antibodies actually mean? We don't have the answer to that yet. Well, yeah, and we're learning more and more that the whole concept of the T cell response, which is the cellular arm, and we can get into that another another day, is actually more important. And more mm-hmm. and what's really cool about that is that it explains why elderly people and those who have uh, pre-existing conditions tend to have more severe symptoms, and why maybe the younger generation, for the most part, uh, don't see it in the same amount. Now, granted, young people still can get severe infection. We know that. Yeah. But yeah. The, the, the low level of that 
is possibly due to this uh, concept of T-cell immunity and what we call heterotypic immunity, where you having had colds in the past may actually be helping you today. Okay, I'm booking you for next week on the T-cells. Let's go to Scott in Port Moody. Welcome to the show, Scott. What's your question for Jason Tetro? Um, well, a bit more of a comment, really. I, um, okay. I have a whole bunch of things going on. Uh, I'm the parent of a child who's going into grade 7, much like yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also uh, immunocompromised because I'm receiving biological treatments for arthritis. Mm-hmm. And I've also been unemployed since the middle of March, and I have no hope of returning to work because I work in the gig industry. Um, so the, the trouble for us is balancing uh, the fact we're going to expose our children to a massive pool of risk, uh, which could affect me directly and severely, uh, but I still can't go back to work. Uh, it's really difficult to balance that in my mind. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a big conflict. Yeah, it, it would definitely be a conflict. And, and I mean, if you happen to be taking biologicals at the moment for uh, an autoimmunity, which essentially arthritis happens to be, then that potentially suggests you have a higher risk of having um, more severe symptoms if you happen to come into contact with high levels of the virus, which we do know can come from children. So I agree with you 100% that this does seem like a very um, concerning situation. What I would, however, also suggest is that um, if you do have... Uh, any type of communication with your board of education, tell them about your case because you're not alone. There's going to be others like you. So try and find out how they would handle this because if it really comes down to being able to continue working or uh, schooling at home for your sake, I don't see a problem with that. Or even creating a safer cohort that is smaller, that is a group that learns online, that their bubble is extra tight. There are all kinds of ideas that can hit the table here. As you said, Jason, with with some time uh, prior to the start of school now slated Mm -hmm. for September the 10th. And I agree with you 100% on the whole idea of the smaller cohorts that are essentially due to um, secondary factors such as people at home. And actually, on Twitter, there's a really, really nice drawing of all the different types of cohorts that we're going to be seeing. And I think it gives people an understanding that this isn't just something that, you know, we came up out of the blue. And Jennifer Newby, I just want to thank you for putting it up there. So if you go onto Twitter and look for her, you'll see it. And it gives you you that idea. You tweet it, I'll retweet it. I'm up against the clock here. I'm definitely calling you on the T-cell thing. You have yourself a fantastic rest of your day and a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, no problem. Take care.